Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day in a rather deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on the air today by Lee Duncan. Lee is the Managing Director of Buy South Africa Limited, a South African food shop with branches in Kingston-upon-Thames, Guildford and Woking. Lee, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you very much, Scott. It's an absolute uh, pleasure having you on the air with us, Lee, and thanks ever so much for taking the time to come on and speak with us today. Now, um, the purpose of this podcast series is to gather together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. And what I'd like to understand first and foremost is what that word leader actually means to you, because it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Okay. Um, to me, the word leader means somebody who has, well, particularly at the moment, um, somebody who has the ability to adapt um, to the times and move forward um, and to motivate a team um, to deal with change. And I think um, the most important thing right now is to remain focused um, on the end goal and um, to keep um, a, a positive outlook and to keep the team, um, keep the team going. Absolutely. So if we were to think about your leadership style then, Lee, would you say that that's very much team orientated as you've laid out there in terms of the key qualities? Yes, I would. Um, we are a family business. Well, we started as a family business 15 years ago after this week. Um, and um, we've managed to sort of maintain that kind of um, family um, way of thinking in terms of how we um, deal with our staff. And I think that's been quite important now. Um and I think that is also quite important in terms of actually getting people motivated and keeping them going. I think keeping people motivated is of huge importance, especially in a time such as this, where a lot of different people are having to maybe work remotely and aren't having that regular human contact with colleagues and also with management. Mm -hmm. And that's a challenge for leaders, isn't it? Keeping people motivated, making sure that everybody is in contact with each other and also ensuring that people are in the right headspace as well, I think, because there's been Mm -hmm. a real renewed focus on mental health and the importance of that during this time as well. Yes, I agree. Absolutely. And Um, I think mm -hmm. one of the ways that we've addressed it is, um, well, you know, during the, the, the real to the crisis in the very beginning was to identify who we're going to keep, who was it, you know, the people that we're going to not be furloughed and stay in the team, um, and then speak to them. And that was the starting point, making sure that everybody that was coming back to work were happy to actually be there. Um, and then, you know, we looked at reducing their hours, making the environment feel safe, um, and then just kind of changing things to making it a little bit more, you know, a bit more fun. It's, you know, we weren't interacting at that time with the public, so it was just down to the core team that were working. Um, so we tried to adjust, you know, and uh, keep everybody a little bit happier over that time. And I think a lot of the, the, the people um, that were staying on were actually very uncertain and, you know, quite scared, really, to be honest. And that's posed a challenge for leaders as well, hasn't it? Because um, I think where there's um, a lot of um, worry and a lot of fear almost of the future, when there is so much uncertainty, there can be a lot of uh, pressure on a leader to try and provide some reassurance and some idea of what to expect in future. But leaders themselves have their own limitations and they may be no more aware of what the future holds and those around them. And so it takes a lot of level headedness and a lot of empathy, I think, to manage such a situation, doesn't it? That is, yeah, that is. Um, one thing that um, we've learned is that, you know, we've got 18 people in our team 
Um, and one thing that we've learned is that every single person has got a different set of issues or a different set of challenges. Um, and we've had to identify those challenges and put people into places where we know that they're going to be strong and they're going to feel comfortable. You know, there are different aspects to our business. We do food production, retail, and we've got an online business. So we've had to sort of get everybody together and say, right, who needs to go where? Where do you feel you're going to fit? And actually um, identify where they felt comfortable. Um, and that's kind of how we've pushed ourselves forward over the last few weeks. And it must have taken some real adapting to sort of change that style of leading the business um, pretty much overnight, really. And that's yeah, been an important element of this as well, hasn't it? That need to not just essentially be proactive in a way, but also balance that out with being reactive because business yeah. is really having to um, adapt at the moment, so not yeah, just yeah, with changing circumstances, but We've, it's often said that this is going to fundamentally change the way that we work in future. And so that's also something that leaders have to take into consideration as well. Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, we, we you know, the two of us that, that um, are directors of this company and we've had, you know, we had a meeting yesterday about the changes that we are going to maintain. So some of the things that we've had to do have actually been really positive changes for the business. Um, and the way that it's affected the team has, has also been quite positive in some ways. And we've looked at it and gone, you know what, we've got new systems that we're going to need to put in place there. You know, new hours, changing the way we do this. We've got a, an online business now, which is absolutely crazy busy, you know. So we've had to make adjustments. Um, the biggest problem we've had is um, distancing our staff. Um, and then having to rotate them. So, you know, um, we've had to, you know, had to get staff working on weekends and stuff like that. But moving forward, I feel like we kind of are where, where we're going to need to be in the next few months. And it's good to hear that, of course, there is a plan going forward um, because business, has, as we've said, has had to be really, really proactive uh, during this time. And when we think about the uh, the future um, as well, uh, Lee, um, for any business leaders who are from the younger generation especially and maybe starting leadership roles in the uh, the coming weeks or maybe aspiring to go into business themselves from your experience of not just being in business for many years but also managing um, a crisis such as this what sort of advice would you give somebody looking to make it within business um i would say definitely the most important thing is courage be, be, be courageous take those chances because you need to um and also Show the team, lead by example, let the team see, you know, you're prepared to do it as well. Um, and that way, you know, you, I think you'll get everything you want out of it. I really do. I think that's very sound advice indeed. And we've talked about that advice that you would give Lee based upon your experience of leadership, your own leadership style in a way. Um, could you perhaps mm-hmm. tell me maybe some of the influences behind that way of leading that you've taken on throughout your career? Um, gosh, influences. Um, I think, um, well, I've been in retail for many, many years and uh, I think I had a really good retail managers before I, you know, before I moved to the UK. Um, I've had, the, I've been very fortunate to work with people that, um, I'm very proud to say I worked for, you know, really, really good, um, bosses, people that had empathy, you know, that were able to, to nurture and, um, you know, people that I could have learned, learned from. So, um, yeah, in terms of that, I would say it's my, my past. Definitely the, um, the, the career that I've had in, in retail has set me up for, you know, um, and I think a lot of it is also learning as you go along. You know, mm. we've been doing this for a long time, you know, um, and you, you do learn from your mistakes. 
Do you think it's really possible to be a good leader or indeed develop into one without having the experience of trying new things, making mistakes, maybe getting one or two things wrong and then learning from them? Because experience is no. also one of the greatest teachers, isn't it, in itself? It is. I think you need to have experience. I think you need to, and that's where the courage comes in. I think you need to have the courage to make the mistakes um, and you need to... Um, you need to be. You need to have that courage to be adaptable and flexible. You know, and say, "I've made a mistake." You know, I need to change that. Um, and I don't think you know. I think fear is not. Um, you know, it's, it's the thing that's going to prevent you from being a good leader. Is that fear? You need to. You need to be courageous, and I think you need to have some sort of initiative. I think that's absolutely right. Adaptability there, as you say, um, and learning from mistakes, changing direction when you have to is so, so important. But interestingly enough, um, from that example that you mentioned there, Lee, of an inspirational leader for you, people that you've worked with, that's mm-hmm. there's a lot of merit in that because when we think of leaders there can be this temptation i think to often envision politicians and sports personalities essentially people who are in the public eye such as celebrities for example whereas right. a lot of the most influential leaders out there especially in the business world can quite often go under the radar simply because they don't that's stick right. their heads above the parapet they get on with things they mentor people because that is what they are good at so is leadership in that context really as recognised as perhaps it should be, do you think? Um, no, I don't think it's as recognised as it should be. I think it's a very, very tough role. Um, and, you know, when the chips are down, you definitely need good leadership. And, you know, if COVID has taught us anything, it is the fact that we actually all need some sort of aspiration and some sort of leadership, you know, who can take charge. I mean... This is why, Scott, you're seeing the smaller businesses are doing, you know, are doing so much better because, you know, they are more adaptable. They've got smaller teams. And um, a lot of them have got, you know, like people like us that have just, you know, not necessarily leaders, you know, just people that are actually trying to do their best. And you hear many stories as well, don't you, that times of adversity such as this, they bring out the best in people. They and do, yes. And the worst. Of course. And you're seeing that within businesses, aren't you? You're seeing that people are, when they're having to really muck in and basically just get on with things for the good of the business, be that working remotely or going in on site Mm -hmm. and continuing to have to work in critical industries, they're getting on with it. And there's a real sense of national unity beginning to emerge from that as well. And Mm -hmm. that's hopefully something that can also be taken forward from this experience as well. Definitely. Absolutely. I agree. I mean, we've seen it, we've seen it with with our customers, we've seen it online, we've seen it with our our team, you know, we've seen everybody's different. And, you know, this is really a good snapshot that you've had, you know, we've we've seen over the past two months and how people behave and how people cope. Everybody has a different level of coping, you know? Mm. And, and that's something that you have to consider when you're trying to um, when you're trying to manage a team. Absolutely, and um, as well as that, I think um, this experience of going out of one's comfort zone um, when, let's say, you're facing difficulties and you're really having to kind of go in all hands to the pump in a way, I think that can really help in one's development, can't it? When you have to really push the boundaries, you have to kind of take on a little bit of independence of your own, a little bit of your own leadership, even as an employee. It can really, really help develop oneself and really help people become good leaders in their own right, can't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've got, you know, I've got one or two staff um, that um, we've, we've talked about, and my, my partner and I were talking about it today. Um, we've got one or two um, that were, you know, sort of the quieter members of our team, and we've noticed that they've really sort of stepped up, you know, in the past few weeks, and they've become a lot more vocal, and 
they're almost a lot, you know, you can see they've almost got a sense of pride now with how, you know, with their, with, with their, with their jobs. Um, and that's something that I don't think we would have, you know, we would have experienced had this not, you know, happened. So there's definitely a, lot, a level of personal growth, you know, on their side. I mean, and, you know, for me personally, this has been such a huge learning curve. You know, um, I feel like, um, you know, I can go out now having succeeded with actually getting through this time. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm confident that we will. Um, I'm, you know, I can see growth, you know, and I can see how we're going we're gonna to do well. And I can imagine you've also learned not just a great deal and how the business can adapt, but also a great deal about the team of people around you as well and um, how you can really rely upon them during a time like this. Yes. Yes. Yes, we have. <laughs> yeah, it has. I mean, my team have been absolutely amazing. We, I mean, we, you know, we've got some tree shops and then the online business and we run our own butchery. Um, and, you know, um, we've seen that production going up. We've seen the, the butchery coast. We've seen our online team absolutely thriving you know we had to bring in um five new pickers you know in our second week because we you know to meet demand and those online teams had to socially distance and train those packets to work you know and have them all up and running to do a job very much hitting the ground and you know it was done and very successful so you know and that kind of confidence is a really good place to be at when you you know taking your team forward it certainly seems as if the uh, the business has really taken um, this challenge in its stride early, absolutely. And um, mm-hmm. if we do think about the uh, the future now, before we do uh, wrap things up on the programme today, do you tell me um, how you envision this continuing into the future, not just in navigating the COVID-19 pandemic, but also in terms of your ambitions beyond then as well? For the business, um, well, I think um, I think retail is going to do well. Um, something that I wasn't sure of um, before COVID. And I think, you know, we would certainly look at growing and perhaps opening another, you know, another store. Um, online has changed completely. And I think we are going to see, a, you know, a huge rise in that. So that's something we're going to need to consider. Um, and I think um, we're going to need to implement new systems. We're going to need to invest in the company and spend money on updating our, um, our EPOS systems and things like that. Um, so those are the kind of things that I'm, I'm looking at on the logistics point of view. Um, for us as a future, I mean, we're 15 this week. Um, if you'd asked me 15 years ago, I said, I said, then we expected five years. So, and now I'm looking at, I'm going, well, actually, here's a year to another 15. You know, it's looking good. And it's great to hear that it is um, a really positive outlook in uh, that sense, especially among amid all the uncertainty um, at the moment, Lee. And um, what I think would be absolutely fantastic for the listeners as well um, tuning into this is um, if in a few months' time when we start to see the fog lifting and we start to see the business developing, we can maybe catch up on how things are getting on and how the market environment has changed. But yeah. um, even though we're just about out of time today, um, I have to say it's been a real pleasure having you on the uh, the programme with us and a really insightful experience as well. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on and speak with me today it's been it's fantastic lovely thank you very much Scott thanks ever so much Lee. Pleasure. do mm-hmm. take care and do stay safe with everything still going on as well for sure I will do thank you 
Thank you. That was Lee Duncan, the Managing Director of Buy South Africa Limited. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss, the Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. Originally born in Johannesburg, South Africa, Strauss moved to the UK when he was only six years old. Um, As a player, Strauss has become, um, of course, England captain. He's one of only three England captains to have won the Ashes both home and away in Australia. And is also the England captain with the second highest amount of test victories in history i hope you enjoy listening just as much as jonathan enjoyed speaking with sir andrew and that's coming up next hello and welcome i'm jonathan white and today we are joined by sir andrew strauss former captain of the england cricket team and former director of cricket at the ecb sir andrew thank you very much for joining us today real pleasure to be here thank you the pleasure is all of ours you know and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> Um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Rescothi who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. Match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? 
Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how, how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, 
you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, 
they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself... Um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially but also in in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I, was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But... Actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be 
the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah well so was, <laughs> was I yeah. actually yeah <laughs> <laughs> absolutely um now and you in your in your wife's memory you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year uh, in doing so whether you'd admit it or not yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands husbands and wives mothers and fathers sons and daughters please do take some time if you wouldn't mind and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. And so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018... Uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about, about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think the, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. 
Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing re uh, wearing red so it w w what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely no they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket um, but more importantly um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day one game a day over a six-week period broadcasters will pay money for that and therefore what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills if you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I I will I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.